Hello, everyone, and welcome to But I Digress, a podcast about writing, not writing, and everything in between. So today we're speaking with Lincoln Michelle, who is quickly emerging as one of the leading lights of literary fiction. We'll be talking about futurism, the challenges of teaching creative writing, the definition of speculative fiction, and of course, what other lives he could have imagined for himself. Lincoln is the author of Upright Beasts, published by Coffeehouse Press, and the co-editor of Gigantic Worlds, published by Gigantic Books. He's the co-founder and co-editor of Gigantic Magazine and the former editor-in-chief of Electric Literature Online. His new novel, The Body Scout, is being published by Orbit, an imprint of Hachette Books, and comes out later this fall. You can find a link to pre-order it in the description of this podcast. Lincoln is known for his genre-bending stories and has been called one of the country's most respected literary journalists. He is a frequent contributor to Noon and has been published by the Paris Review, Granta, Tin House, and The Believer, and he won a 2015 Pushcart Prize. Lincoln, thank you for joining me. Oh, thank, thanks so much for having me and for that so, very nice introduction. Oh, well, <laughs> deservedly so. Um, I want to start by asking, you You now live in the greater New York area, um, and I'm just wondering, why did you come to New York? Well, you know, I, I grew up in Virginia, and initially really in kind of a rural part of Virginia, near, near Charlottesville, Virginia, but uh, we kind of lived out um, in the woods, and actually in the first house I, I remember growing up in, my, my family moved around a bit, we had just like we were surrounded entirely by forests and I, you know, spent my time hanging out with like, you know, salamanders and crawfish and the creeks and stuff. There was, there was no one, no one really around. And in retrospect, I really am glad that I was brought up that way in nature, but I think I always kind of yearned to be in a big city and be where the culture was happening, you know, where you could make art or music or whatever, and people might pay attention. So you know, I came to New York for that reason in a in a larger sense and in a more specific sense, or the vehicle that let me get to New York is that I got into an MFA program at Columbia University. So I came up here in 2006 for that and just stuck around. Yeah, <laughs> that, um, that's a familiar route. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah not, not unique, but that, that is what happened with me. Well, let me ask you before we, because I do want to talk about... Um, uh, about something related to your most recent book or your forthcoming book, The Body Scout. But first, I wanted to ask you, when did you realize you wanted to be a writer? And, 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 and what, um, what inspired that feeling? Yeah, well, you know, kind of like I was just saying, I always wanted to be somewhere where, I don't know, culture was being made. And I guess, you know, as pretentious say, from like a very young age, I, I feel like I always wanted to be an artist. And I mean that pretty broadly. I don't mean like I necessarily wanted to be, you know, in the Tate Museum or something, but I really wanted to make art of some kind, whether that was comic books or, or punk music or paintings or, or anything like that. And I think, you know, the honest truth is that I was just very bad at all of the art forms that I tried. I have like maybe... um some kind of hand-eye coordination issue where my handwriting is like truly the sloppiest handwriting you've ever seen. And because of that, I could never really like play instruments and was never a good 
illustrator or anything like that. I'm also a bit tone deaf, so I couldn't really be a singer. But I tried all those things when I when I was in high school or something. And it wasn't until I was in college that I tried writing. And that just kind of clicked with me. It was like a vehicle for my self-expression, as, as cliche as that is. But it was like the one art form that clicked for me. So that was when I was like, oh, maybe this is what I can do to like make things. So is that, do you feel like art in general and writing in particular, like serves a purpose? Is there a mission or is it just this urge to express yourself? Well, that's a big question (laughs) and a good one. I mean, as someone who really cares about art, again, I'm just speaking very broadly and and when when I use that term, but I would like to think so. I mean, you know, I think art is to a certain degree, like what makes life worth living. I don't know what I would, what I would do with my time if I didn't have books to read or music to listen to or paintings to see, or even just, you know, action, big budget, superhero comic movies to see, you know, that's, that's kind of what we fill our time with, but you know, it's also maybe, you know, I feel like to a certain degree that most of like what, what made me in terms of my aesthetics and my politics and my sense of morality and and all of these things honestly was art to a degree. I mean, for me, I was really, really into punk music and hip hop and that kind of stuff when I was young and truly got like a lot of my sense of the world and my moral sense towards other people and, and so on from those those venues so certainly it provided me with a lot with whether it was good or not is you know another question but i think art has shaped me and shapes people you know for better or worse hopefully better right (laughs) well it depends (laughs) depends on the art right so some of it shapes you for worse some for better so you gotta look for the good stuff so you're probably a baseball fan and i say that simply because part of the premise of um, the Body Scout is revolves around baseball. I do like baseball and I like s- sports in general, but it's probably, you know, a little bit surprising. Maybe I shouldn't even admit this, but I'm not like the biggest sports person. Like I, I find sports interesting and I watch them sometimes, but it's not my my biggest passion. But it was kind of for the Body Scout, I really wanted, I don't know, I think my initial idea for it was to kind of make a cyberpunk type novel you know, that kind, of, that kind of mix of noir and kind of dystopian, anti-corporate kind of punk rock vibe science fiction, but to do it with a subject that wasn't the traditional subject of cyberpunk, which is kind of the internet and, and that kind of technology. And instead, I, I wanted to, I tried to focus on a future where body modification and genetic editing and basically the human body is the kind of center of innovation and capitalist control and all of that and when i was thinking about that baseball seemed like a kind of natural way in since obviously you know i'm i'm old enough to have grown up during the steroid scandal age and and that seemed like an easy thing to kind of project from you know it's funny because um i had a a teacher um in graduate school who was on the more experimental side of things um and he 
introduced me to the work of, of Robert Coover. Mm -hmm. um, and you might be familiar with this book um, that Coover wrote called The Universal Baseball Association, Henry J. Waugh, Proprietor. And, um, and you know, on the surface, it's about a, a, a guy who plays his own customized, highly elaborate version of Stratomatic, where you have to roll 18 dice to get the outcome of a single pitch. And uh, um, he's um, a widower and becomes increasingly obsessed by the universe that he's created. Um, and I remember talking um, to my teacher about that and because I'm a huge baseball fan, I was talking about the baseball aspect of it. And he said, you know, I'm not sure Coover is really a baseball fan. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you're, you're in, you're in um, good company if, if, you know, to, to the extent that, um, that baseball is only a, you know, sort of a vehicle, if you will, for what, what, um, what you've done. Um, the other thing, well, yeah, curious, I... go ahead. Well, I, I, you know, I don't want to make it seem like I don't like baseball. I do enjoy it. And I would also say that baseball is the sport that I played the most as a kid, you know, more in like t-ball form. Although even here in New York, there's a kind of there's a fun um, media league where magazines like The Believer and the Paris Review and Harper's and so on field, you know, softball teams. And I play that sometimes. So it's a sport I've, I've played and, and enjoy a lot. But if you were going to, you know, name drop you know, pitchers from the seventies, I, I would probably, <laughs> probably, probably not know who they all were. Yeah, no, I wasn't, um, I wasn't trying to imply that, um, um, you were, uh, an effete snob who actually never, you know, dirtied the soles of your feet on a, <laughs> on a baseball diamond. Um, but, um, but I do think it's interesting and baseball tends to lend itself in a lot of ways to narratives that are about other things. Um, I, I do have yeah. to say that, you have um, the singular talent of um, having been able to take words of Yogi Berra and make them seem ominous. Um, <laughs> um, but speaking of singular talent, um, another book that your book reminded me of, and not in any, you know, not in any formal way, but the the topic is a book by Ray Kurzweil called The Singularity is Near, um, which talks about sort of the um, human brain, computer brain unification. Um, I'm wondering if you were familiar with that. When you, you I, I've never read the book, but I'm definitely familiar with some of his theories and his predictions, too, and the kind of general concept of the singularity, certainly. I think that, you know, with the major caveat that I haven't read the book, so I you know, I'm I'm speaking kind of third, third hand or, or from interpretations I've read. I think that um, he has a much more, well, definitely more optimistic view of where, where things are going, right? But he also seems to, you know, my understanding, I don't know. I realize I'm I'm kind of fumbling over my words here. But I think one thing that bothers me a lot in science fiction is where people create these worlds where there's like a new technology and everyone adopts it fully and there's kind of a clear exponential rise towards that technology with kind of no interruptions. And the critiques I've read of his book critique it on those grounds that he kind of predicts this clear exponential path in which there's no kind of step backs and the, his predictions for the future, the ones that didn't come through also seem like they fit into that. 
like I remember he predicted that by 2009, all the vast majority of text that was generated would be from text uh, from sorry, speech to text programs. Right. We have those programs and they exist, but they're clearly not widely adopted. And that's not the majority of way people create text. So one thing I did want to explore in the body scout, I guess, was, I mean, to tie back into that is the kind of clashes over technology and the different kind of ideologies that come up and the different levels of adoption of technology that, that occur and how all of that kind of plays out in, in capitalism and in a system of wealth inequality and in a system of different bodies and different approaches to you know, existence, I guess. By the way, sense. so 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 that listeners of this podcast um, don't get scared away by thinking this is some sort of highly theoretical book. Um, it's it's a it's an action-packed detective detec- detective story, um, you know, wrapped in a futuristic setting um, and a disquieting uh, futuristic setting. Um, and I wanted to, to ask you, I noticed that you interviewed the Swedish author Karen Tidback about speculative fiction. And mm-hmm. I was wondering if you could explain what speculative fiction is and what makes it different from, say, science fiction or future fiction. Sure. So this is one of those things, whenever you get to anything in the kind of genre label category, like everything is fraught, right? And people <laughs> debate these terms and fight over them. Uh, speculative fiction has a kind of history where it used to be kind of used by some authors. And if I'm remembering correctly, Margaret Atwood was a big one who wanted to distinguish themselves from kind of far future or hard science fiction, you know, science fiction that's really just exploring how technology can work rather than theoretically how humans work. Or at least this was, I think her critique, if I'm remembering. So she would call her work, speculative fiction instead and there was other authors like that these days the term has kind of been turned into basically just an umbrella term for science fiction fantasy and horror fiction or at least the horror fiction that has supernatural or unreal elements to it so that's pretty much just how i'm using it kind of as a a nice shorthand for anything that's kind of weird or outside the realm of realism right And I teach in an MFA program at Sarah Lawrence College that has a speculative fiction track. Like when you apply, you apply to be a poet, to be a a fiction writer, I guess with a kind of silent literary in front of it, or to be a speculative fiction writer. And that's how it kind of breaks down there or in like a lot of academia. Obviously here, there's still lots of, um, you know, fights that happen over whether magical realism or a postmodernist like Robert Coover would count as speculative fiction or not. Uh, but without like wading too much into that, that's basically how, how I'm using it just as a, an umbrella term for kind of unreal fiction. And I want to, I want to get back to the teaching aspect of your life in a little bit, but um, right now I want to delve a little bit into the whole issue of genre in part, because from the perspective of selling books, um, there's sort of, seemingly a divide, right? Genre fiction versus literary fiction. And I mean, you just described it in the curriculum at Sarah Lawrence. Um, You have been described as a genre bending writer. Um, I guess with the emphasis I should have put on the word bending. So (laughs) um, I'm wondering whether, did you start with ideas that 
wanted to write about and you were looking around for a convenient vessel like science fiction or detective stories and use that to pour your ideas into? Or you know, did you think to yourself, I really like science fiction or I like detective stories and I think I can push the boundaries of the genre? Yeah, well, this is something I, I think and talk about a lot. And, you know, so I love the question. I hope I don't, you know, ramble on too too long and be too boring. <laughs> I'll cut you, know, you off yeah. if you do. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you were talking about Robert Coover before, who who I want to say up front, I love, right? I love a lot of his work. I haven't actually read his baseball book, which I really should, but I love um, Ghost Town and a lot of his short stories and you know, I, I think he's a great writer and, and definitely influential to me. But kind of along the lines of what you were saying about how he wrote this baseball book, but like didn't actually like baseball, maybe. I knew a writer who was one of his students who, again, admired him a lot. But he, he was telling me how Robert Coover. So he, Coover has a lot of books that are just about genre, right? He has Ghost Town, which is about... Uh, westerns it's kind of a western postmodernist mashup kind of book and he has a book called i believe noir which is about noir fiction obviously he has several books about fairy tales and he really he does that right one one of the great things he does but i remember um this writer telling me that he he felt a little disappointed when he was working with coover to realize that coover did not care about genre at all like for him like baseball it was just purely material it was material that he could kind of bend into whatever shapes he was interested in exploring. And I think for me, and a lot of writers of my age, uh, or my generation or whatever, if that's not too pompous to say, uh, we come from it from more of an angle of like truly loving genre. Like I definitely wrote The Body Scout hoping to write a, a true science fiction book, not to just use science fiction as like literary material. Mm-hmm. And, and so I'm thinking when I say like writers of roughly my generation, I'm thinking of like Carmen Maria Machado and uh, Kelly Link and Brian Evanson and writers like that. And it isn't. Yeah. So that's I think that's an answer to your question. Right. I, I definitely come from it from wanting to from being deeply invested in those genres and, and also, yeah, ideally wanting to kind of push them in different directions and see what kind of new newness i can add to them or not well so um interesting that you use the plural right um in terms of genres Mm. i I mean isaac asimov ursula k leggin the sci-fi writers i i grew up reading i mean they wouldn't write detective stories (laughs) um i mean they may have written i mean they obviously wrote human stories within yeah their genre um but i get the sense that you're not married to science fiction. Like you could go ahead and date a detective uh, <laughs> genre if you know you wanted. Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, in some level, I would ideally write a book in like every genre. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like I would love to write a horror novel, and I would love to write a yeah, a straight up kind of crime novel, and uh, like a big weird fantasy book. And you know, I'm sure that there'd be things about my sensibilities that would unify them all, but. Yeah, that that appeals to me a lot. And I think that that's also more of a trait of my generation of writers. It seems like we we move around a lot more freely for for whatever reason. And I think that that's incredibly liberating. Um, But 
I'm curious about the commercial implications of that because um, unless you're labeled, you know, literary fiction and then everything else, you know, whatever genre you would, whatever subgenre you adopt, and I'm not being that pejorative, but sort of if, if, if you are, you know, um, Lincoln Michelle, the highly regarded author with a capital A, then, you know, commercially, I guess from an older paradigm, maybe, maybe I am talking from an older paradigm and that's what I'm asking you is commercially and sort of, I'm not talking about like, you know, the dollar amount of the advance you get, but rather just the ongoing feasibility of you being published um, in, in a world where, you know, uh, backlists are dying and it's just incredibly difficult. I don't need to tell you um, yes. to get published. So, um, from a, is it a career killer to, to be genre hopping or do you feel confident enough and, you know, what are you hearing about your own prospects for doing that? Well, yeah, that's a great question. Like my editor is furiously dial, dialing into this podcast to say, no, <laughs> um, you know, I, I would say that one thing kind of along these lines that's interesting to me is that I do feel like my generation of writers and also, you know, the current generation of readers do not care about these genre kind of boundaries and labels so much. But I do think that the two, the two worlds are still very separate. Like there's very different magazines that review kind of speculative fiction work or review literary fiction work. There's different awards and rarely are the same books ever up for the same awards even, you know, the best science fiction fantasy writers and the best literary fiction writers who are kind of dabbling in that space, they never are up for the awards in the other space, you know, or almost never. And yeah, from that point of view, it maybe, it maybe is um, hard to, to, to hop around too much. I do think, you know, to go back to the, the term speculative fiction, there is a sense that horror fiction and fantasy and science fiction, which are the three that I'm probably the most drawn to are all linked. And there's kind of a, a long history of writers writing in all three of those genres. You know, someone like Stephen King obviously does all of them, right? And so those are kind of easy to move around in, but whether it would be easy to jump and write a romance book or a, a YA book or something or a middle grade book, I, I don't know. Well, I think those are, um, those have got such strict parameters. Um, there's almost like a banned word list and there's a, you know, <laughs> what has to happen by page 10 kind of a formula to some of those that you just described, which, I, I, you know, is um, not, I don't think it's what we're talking about when we're talking about genre. I mean, when to me, I think you'd agree, you know, Nero Wolf and um, James Elroy are part of the same genre. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, they're not the sort of highly formulaic thing that is, say, romance or YA. Or, um, it's funny because um, I'm sure that you've heard of the movie um, First Blood or Rambo, right? Uh, uh, yeah. The, the, the writer of, of the original um, uh, First Blood book, his name is David Morrell, and he's written a whole swath of really well-written books um, that have a lot of richness in them. Um, but they are a genre that, I don't know if it, if it still exists, it's called men's fiction. 
Um, <laughs> and I had I, I I knew an agent who 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 had at one point in uh, Morel's career been his agent. Um, and he was like, yeah, he writes men's fiction. I'm like, men's fiction? <laughs> what is men's fiction? <laughs> well, men's fiction, um, you know, has a sort of um, virile protagonist who, um, uh, you know, goes about solving problems um, that occur, that, you know, sort of uh, he encounters. It, it, there's, I guess maybe there's no inner life is maybe the, um, <laughs> uh, that's, that's, that's too harsh, but um yeah, I don't know whether men's fiction as a genre still exists. Um, yeah. But, you know, when I was a kid, so the uh, somebody, a, a, a family friend, um, said to me uh, when he found out that I wanted to be a writer, because that was, that had been my ambition since I was about 12. Um, oh, and, yes. you, you knew very young. Well, like you, there were very few things I was actually good at, and that was one of them. Um, I, and, and so um, he said, you know, well, you know, um, there's only three writers in the United States who make a living from fiction. They're Sidney Sheldon, Norman Mailer, and Philip Roth. I think those were, the, I'm not sure about Roth, but the, other, the first two were Sidney Sheldon and Norman Mailer. Um, and it, this was completely apocryphal, right? I mean, it was, but, but I believed it. <laughs> and 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 he said so you know what do you think about that and i said i'll be number four <laughs> <laughs> um but um but i was 12 uh did you get this kind of a speech from anybody um did it daunt you or were you just like me like okay whatever i'll be number four well, so you, um, you know, you, you, you mentioned this um, over email to me, and I actually had to look up who Sidney Sheldon was, which, <laughs> which is like a good example of how fleeting commercial success can be, right? Because mm -hmm. I saw that he was once one of the like 10 bestselling authors of all time. <laughs> I've never, never heard of him. But um, I, I don't I didn't get a speech. Yeah, I mean, I got versions of that speech for sure. You know, when I, I started taking some workshops in college, when I had first um, in undergrad, when I, you know, had just started writing, at least in any kind of serious capacity. And it was certainly was pretty well drilled into you that the money is minimal and fleeting. You know, I think that I, I'm like technically a millennial, not to get into too much into generations again, but I am an older millennial, millennial who certainly grew up in that kind of gen x slash punk rock whatever kind of mindset in which you know your art was never gonna make you a bunch of money and indeed it was almost like bad to do that you know you were almost like selling out if you were making a lot of money mm -hmm. and so i always went into it with the mindset of like i'm gonna make money somewhere else and you know get as much money from the quote unquote man or whatever as I can doing as little work <laughs> as possible and then do my art for myself on the side. So for better or worse, I always kind of went into it with that kind of mindset and with the kind of weird fiction that I was most drawn to, like, you know, weird in terms of non-realism and also kind of experimental and languagey kind of work. You know, I, I definitely ne was never under the illusion that I was going to be getting six-figure advances or anything. Um, how do you how do you feel about um, who you're writing for? What's your audience, and how do you how do you go about the um, 
not as a not as a publisher, uh, not as a publicist, but as a writer. When you're thinking about your writing, uh, you're you're thinking about what you're about to write. Uh, how do you think about what your who your audience is and how you're going to snag them? Yeah, well, that, that's a very good question. You know, I, I don't know if it's something I think about so much, and maybe maybe I should more. But the writers who, you know, we were talking a lot about genre and, and science fiction and noir and stuff, which can have like very big audiences. And obviously, the book I just wrote is more in that that vein. But the writers that I kind of grew up really wanting to imitate or just like be really admiring were writers like Franz Kafka was was probably the biggest one for me, and Atal Calvino was really big for me. Donald Barthelme. Um, and these writers, I never got the sense that they were like massively popular, <laughs> or and so if I was writing in their vein, I never thought that I could be either, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know. I think I might I maybe approach it from more of a you know, what can I do and what makes sense to me? And, you know, what, how can I put my own unique stamp in this, whatever kind of genre I'm working in, whatever kind of style, and just kind of hope that it works, you know, hope that it connects to other people. But I think, you know, I, I write more for my own sensibilities, I guess. I think that's uh, incredibly healthy. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's it's heartening to hear that. Um so you were talking about, um, you know, being realistic, let's put it that way, about sort of the financial side of, of art. Um, and so, um, and I was doing this podcast with Michael Gottlieb, whose work you may be familiar with or not. He's mm-hmm. a poet um, and um, he's been at it for a long time. And he's written a book of essays about sort of, um, you know, what writers choose to do. Um, and I'm curious, so I, I had the same topic with him, which is, you know, so you're, you're teaching, um, and you do a lot of editing. Um, mm-hmm. so your work is your, your sort of remunerative work, remunerative work <laughs> is centered around language. Um, did you ever think to yourself, um, and you did mention this, you know, the man, right? I mean, did you ever think about just getting some schlub job um, that you could do half in your sleep or even, um, you know, uh, work in, in some kind of blue collar thing or um, waiting tables? Was that ever something that you seriously considered, you know, that's the thing I want to do because I don't want to clutter my writing with other people's writing? Yeah, I mean, it's a very good question. I will say that to the to the last part of that question about like kind of getting your brain cluttered or your your creative energy sapped, I've never really felt that way. To me, what is draining is just is work, <laughs> like is the time, right? Mm-hmm. And if I work a and I have worked, you know, more like manual labor jobs and and more blue or white white collar rather office jobs, especially when I was younger and those drain me just as much as like teaching fiction because, and often more because it was uh, more time, right? Like when you're Mm -hmm. teaching, you can, you know, you do have like summer breaks and you have, you can, if you're freelance writing, you can kind of 
pick up the pieces you need to and, and do the work when it fits into your schedule to a certain degree. And it's maybe less work than your average, you know, 50 hour a week job. And yeah, so for me, I, I guess what I'm saying is that I kind of fell into the kind of career path that I've had, which is editing and editing and freelance writing and teaching. And part of that is because that's just like an easy skill for me to market because I do publish fiction and I have like an MFA degree and such. But it's also because I can I can get more free time from that than I might from other jobs. That said, I think it's probably way smarter to get the kind of job that pays you a lot and doesn't drain you. I've, I've known writers who were, say, pharmacists or who worked for the government uh, in some kind of you know, position that has a lot of security and has actual benefits. And then they would just come home and write afterwards. And that might be a smarter way to do it. But yeah, it never, those opportunities never came up for me. I didn't like turn my nose down at them. They, these other opportunities came up more in my field and, and I took those. Yeah. I, you know, I come from an era where you looked at help wanted ads in a print thing and they were alphabetized by category of job. Um, and under no-show jobs, there was just like nothing. Um, th that category didn't seem to exist. And uh, no, I think that um, I think the mistake a lot of people make, and you know, tell me what you think, and you've you've known a lot of writers, is to think that an essentially empty, you know, nine-to-five office job is in any way liberating, because actually. You come home from that just about as exhausted as you are from a work that's from a job that's actually demanding. Yeah, I mean that's how I feel. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it doesn't. I, if, if I'm working fifty hours a week doing that versus thirty hours a week editing fiction or something, I would always take the thirty hour a week job if the money was the same. So, um, tell me a little bit about your actual process, like in terms of. Do you get up at five in the morning, make yourself a cup of coffee, start writing, or do you get up at nine, dash off to whatever you have to do, you know, burn the midnight oil? What's your, what's your thing? I am like truly awful at this part of existence and definitely my number one issue. I'm, I'm very much a procrastinator. I'm not good at routine. <laughs> so I don't really have one, you know, before COVID and everything, I used to be the kind of writer who went to a cafe for hours. Um, mm -hmm. And that would kind of be a routine, but whether or not I got any writing done was, you know, who knows. Um, but yeah, I, I guess on the flip side, on a more, a more positive spin is that I can be somewhat flexible with my work. I'm not really the kind of writer who has to be in the same location every day or even use the same uh, tools. Like I can write on my computer or I can write in a notebook. I can write on a bench at the park or I can write at my desk. I can I can kind of do all that. So time management's an issue for me, but the, I'm pretty flexible if I'm if I'm work if I'm succeeding in making myself work, I can kind of do that wherever and kind of whatever the the time constraints allow. All that said, I, I will say that by far the most productive I've ever been is when I've done writing residencies. You know, the kind of thing where for a month you go to some cabin in Vermont and they make you dinner and you have nothing to do but write and everyone else is writing so you feel a lot of pressure or doing whatever artistic disciplines they're doing so you know you can't like 
or I can't dick around as much on the internet. Cause I'm like, okay, everyone besides me is working. <laughs> I gotta, I gotta get to work. And so those, yeah, no, I agree that those type of scenarios are, are very productive. Um, I find that if I go in cold, however, um, I spend half the time warming up. And so mm. personally, I, I need to um, write every day, um, at least 15 minutes. And I mean, I guess where I differ from a lot of people who are disciplined is that they, you know, set aside an hour or an hour and a half. Um, and um, I don't need to do that. I mean, an hour or an hour and a half is a huge luxury to me because I have a full-time job and a five-year-old. So for me, mm. it's, can I sneak? But if I can, I know I can sneak in 20 minutes, a half hour every day. Um, and by doing it every day, I don't have that, you know, I need to warm up process. I, I, it's, it's as if I had never stopped. I just, well, you, know. and you, can, you can be remarkably productive in a short period of time, I think, especially if you're, you're focused. I, I, one thing that I've been, done for myself recently that I like, it is super boring and not terribly interesting, but I think it, it really works for me. And it's an extension of what you're saying is that I use the stopwatch feature on my cell phone and I give myself some time limit to work in a day. And it might just be an hour and it might be two hours, but I can get like a ton done. And yeah, in like an hour. And it's same with 50 minutes or 30 minutes. And I use a stopwatch. And if I, you know, go on Twitter or something, I stop at the stopwatch. It's just like just when I'm writing. And, you know, uh, you know so that, uh, that, that, that's actually really smart. Um, and it keeps you honest, which, which is good. I mean, you have to, I think that as writers have to keep ourselves honest. Um, yeah, no one else is going <laughs> to. Something that I encountered when I started working in journalism, um, to which I came relatively late in life, um, was the warning that it would, you know, it would kill my fiction. Um, and, and, you know, journalism is very different from fiction writing because you structure stories in a particular way. You have to write intentionally flatly, um, especially if you're, if, if you're good. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, it, it's a different discipline and I never found that it impacted my fiction writing in any way. Um, but I also heard, and I'm curious to know what your experience is that teaching writing, um, editing other people's fiction, that that has a way of kind of getting in your head and messing with your own mojo. Have you found that to be the case? Uh I, I, I don't, honestly. I, I think it's kind of inspiring because you can kind of, maybe less from reading like student work, although, you know, I have students who are good, but I also teach other fiction writers and it's a, you know, we read short stories in a workshop or I teach a craft seminar where we're only reading other people, right? And that's one of those things that forces you to really revisit and think about the the work that you really love. And other people's work is, you know, what tends to inspire me you know, it doesn't have to be other fiction. It can be watching great movies or seeing great visual art. But if I'm like out there and I'm teaching Octavia Butler and Shirley Jackson and whoever else, I'm probably going to get inspired for my own work. Mm -hmm. So I, I find it useful. I actually have some issues with the journalism side of things when, when I do kind of freelance writing, but that's more because I get into this poverty mindset where I'm like, I have to take on every assignment that comes my way. 
because I <laughs> need the money to pay rent. Yeah. And there's not the kind of structure of teaching where it's like, you're getting paid X to teach this class. You know, you're not going to get more or less than that. But when I'm doing freelance writing, I'm like, oh, I just got to pitch all the time and take all the assignments I can. And that kind of messes with my writing mojo because it's, you know, again, it's a time thing. Yes. Yeah. And when you're not, when you're not working on something, you feel like you need to be pitching. Yeah. Yeah. You, it's, well, you, you know it better than me, I'm sure, but yeah, it can be a real grind. So what's your retirement plan? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I have a full-time job now teaching, which is the first time I've had a like full-time job with any kind of benefits really maybe ever <laughs> I had when I was working in electric literature, it was a mostly full-time job, but there weren't really any benefits. And for now I have my first job where I have an actual like 401k plan attached and or technically a 403B plan since it's teaching. So I don't know. I guess my hope is to to, to write it. But otherwise, you know, I, I'm pretty much um, doing the writer thing of crossing my fingers and hoping, you know, Hollywood makes some massive budget, big budget hit off of one of my one of my weird books, and then I can retire. Right. No, I, I because the alternative for me, and this was the case until I had a. Uh, because I have two older kids, I figured, okay, well, you know, once they can take care of themselves, then um, I can live in a um, uh, in a camping car, camper car, you know, and uh, um, roll into a town and do a little reading and sell some, you know, sell some books and just, you know, live in the little car and just, you know, um, that was my retirement plan. But now I have a five-year-old, um, so <laughs> I have to, uh, I have to revise that. Um, yeah, I don't have kids, so that that helps. And it's interesting because, um, you know, that obviously that that, that changes the the, the dynamics um, enormously. Um, I I did a podcast with um, Adam Wilson, whom I know you know, and I I know you you know I did the podcast. Um, one of the things that he said that was really interesting. Um, was the sense of disappointment um, that accompanies publication because, you know, you have this idea of how it's going to impact the world um, and how it's going to be received. And no matter what, you know, the reality doesn't fit the preconceptions. Um, have you had that experience and, and, and how do you deal with it? Yeah. Um, well, I'm a, I'm a little like lucky or, or maybe uh, in the, the calm before the storm or something in that, you know, it's my first novel coming out uh, the, you know, the body scout is my first novel and I had a short story collection that came out before and I've edited, co-edited a, a couple of anthologies, but you don't really expect short story collections or anthologies to like make that kind of impact that maybe a novel can. Mm-hmm. So I'm still in the, I'm, I, you know, I have the delusion of hope right now, but <laughs> well, I, do I mean, think, del- I'm sorry, go ahead. I, I do think it, I mean, it's deflating in a lot of ways. One of the ways that it's kind of, that, that was kind of surprisingly anticlimactic for me with my first book is for the story collection 
is that, you know, you kind of expect you're like building up to publication day in your mind and like, then it's going to be in the world and everyone's going to like see it. And like, it's going to all explode right then. Right. All the mm-hmm. good things. But instead, and obviously, you know, this, what happens is you get your, you get your cover art and your galleys, like, six or nine months before it comes out and you get your early reviews like four months before it comes out. And then you even get your bigger reviews, maybe a couple weeks before it comes out. And by the time it's actually published, like you've already had like much, much of the most exciting things have already happened. And then all you get to do is like, watch it not become a bestseller. <laughs> you know, um, when the actual adventures of Michael missing came out, um, it got reviewed by people magazine. Mm. Um, and um, they have a, I don't know if they still have this, called Picks and Pans. And it was a pick as opposed to a pan. Um, and it was one of the few, well, first of all, it was one of the few reviews I got. And secondly, it was one of the few glowing reviews I got. Um, and I was living in France at the time, and this was pre-internet days, and Gordon Lish sent me the clipping. He was, you know, my editor at Knopf. And mm. um, uh, he said, don't don't buy the Porsche just yet, um, <laughs> and <laughs> um, and you know I didn't. Um, and surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly, it, it didn't move the needle like an iota. It, it's like you know it, it just didn't matter. Um, and predictably, it it, it didn't sell um, particularly well. Um, and I remember my agent asking me. You know, what I thought about the fact that Knopf had decided to print 5,000 copies. And I said, um, yeah, a little disappointed. She said, what do you mean? I said, well, I mean, my understanding is that if it doesn't sell 10 or 12,000 copies, no one's going to pick up the paperback rights. And she looked at me like with, with Google eyes and she's like, have you read what you write? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, <laughs> um, you know, uh, delusional is probably... The appropriate term well yeah i mean i do think too and maybe this is just too publishing insidery but it is true that like it's incredibly hard to know what moves the needle at all and it seems like very random and you know there's some obvious things that move the needle which are probably not going to apply to the kind of books that you and i write or that adam wilson writes um which is you know oprah book club pick or or something like that but other than that yeah, you just never know. I, when I worked at Electric Literature, we shared an office with a publisher and I had briefly had access to BookScan, you know, which tells you like the actual sales data. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, I snooped around really for my own education, just kind of looking up authors I admire and books I like and books that were hyped. And the sales results were always surprising and not always in a negative direction. Sometimes it was a book that I didn't hear anyone talking about that sold really well. And then other times it's a book that the New Yorker and the New York times and the Paris review are all giving glowing reviews to, and you know, only a couple hundred people buy it. It's, it's, it's very hard to know, but luckily uh, I don't work on that side of publishing. So I don't have to stress about that other than I guess for my own book. Well, I hope I haven't added to or created new stress for you, but um, no, I think quite on the contrary from the perspective of this podcast and our audience, I think this is, right in the wheelhouse um but i will i will i have two more questions um to wrap things up um and the first you 
may have hinted at earlier. And if you couldn't have been a writer, um, what would your dream vocation have been? Well, assuming that all of the other arts are out of the picture, that like, you know, being a rock star or an internationally famous surrealist painter or something <laughs> isn't on the table. You know, I don't know. I think that when I was older that I realized that I was um, more suited to something like being a professor than, I don't know, some other job. And I, you know, when I went to college, I initially thought I was going to major in either philosophy or history and just become like a philosophy or history professor. Probably would have been very hard to actually be a philosophy professor um, these days. But when I was younger, when I was a little kid, I always wanted to be a zoologist. That was my, my dream job or a biologist, something to do with animals and life and studying that. Well, that's very cool. Um, and and you're, um, you're unique so far in that regard. Um, I've had race car driver and baseball player. Um, and I have, I've not had zoologist, which I think is awesome. I don't even know. I don't know how that came about, but I remember like, and I would, you know, you'd have a project in first grade or something. And I was like, I want to go study lemurs in Madagascar. <laughs> the other question that I have to ask is, do you dog ear books or do you use bookmarks? Mm, um, you know, so for, for most of my life, I have been one of those never mark up a book at all kind of people. I, I don't write, didn't write notes in them, anything mm -hmm. like that. I was very, you know, try to keep the spines pristine and I'm still largely like that, but now that I'm a professor and also a sometimes book reviewer, those when I when I do that kind of when I prep for a class or I review a book, I mark it up freely, dog ear it, do all of that. But I do tend to buy a second copy, so I have my like my pristine copy of Pale Fire, and then I have my super marked up one that I teach with. Pale Fire is a great great example of um the unreliable narrator and i just um i love the use of footnotes yeah i uh, to be honest the next book that i kind of am wrapping up is basically a science fiction pale fire book so we'll see we'll see if that sells at all but that's kind of <laughs> uh that's why it's on my mind a lot that's of fantastic footnotes. well listen thanks so much for being on this podcast, um, I think that a lot of people um, will get a lot out of this discussion. Well, thanks so much for having me. You bet. You've been listening to But I Digress, a podcast about writing, not writing, and everything in between. I'm your host, Michael Hickens. If you like what you just heard, want to find more episodes, or want to know more about me, visit my website at michaelmissing.com.